All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Samarodi. The debate over whether the government could or should get access to your phone is here. And it's personal. Here's Apple CEO Tim Cook. We built the iPhone for you, our customers. And we know that it is a deeply personal device. For many of us, the iPhone is an extension of ourselves. We are at a key milestone, even if the FBI finds a way to get into the San Bernardino shooter's locked iPhone without forcing Apple to write new software. A close relationship is being negotiated. The relationship between the tech companies and the government. The relationship between the people who built that thing in your pocket, the one that has all your banking details and pictures of your family's last vacation, and the people who we think and hope can keep us safe. People on the other side, people like Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance. Criminals understand that this new operating system provides them with a cloak of secrecy. And they are, ladies and gentlemen, quite literally laughing at us. And guess who's in the middle of this contentious negotiation? Yeah, you. You as consumer and citizen. This is about all of us. And that's why some people, who have nothing to do with tech or defense are weighing in. People like this man. This is Russell Banks. And Russell, if you had to say what you were best known for, what would it be? Well, it's as a novelist. Russell Banks is the award-winning novelist who wrote Affliction and the Sweet Hereafter. He's one of the country's most prestigious fiction writers. And he decided to add his name to a letter written by the Penn American Center, of which he is a member. The letter is to the U.S. government on behalf of Apple. And a whole list of literary luminaries have added their names, too. Authors like Gay Talese and Jay McInerney. I wanted to know why Russell Banks felt the need to take a stand publicly. I spoke to him just after Apple's date in court with the FBI was postponed and dozens of people were killed in Brussels. This was unusual in that regard. It was not the typical kind of uh, letter that Penn sends out to its membership. And so it uh, raised questions and issues that I don't think most writers think about too much uh, until the occasion arises like this. Yeah, it was interesting. One of the links in the letter where it was posted online mentions a survey that was done Mm. last year of 800 writers around the world. And I was fascinated by this, that even those who live in democracies said, this is 75 percent of them, said that they censor themselves or avoid speaking or writing about certain topics because they're worried about government surveillance. 
Does exactly. That, you know, really, I think exactly. Especially since the Snowden. Yeah, I think since the Snowden revelations in particular. Although most writers that we care about the most, writers of consequence, tend to work on the edge of what's conventional or what's acceptable, and and they often are doing research into human behavior, human activities, political uh, realities that most people would prefer to ignore. So. Writers are likely to be especially sensitive to being watched, and because they also know they're more likely to be watched, uh, not just in, in uh, oppressive regimes in faraway places, but uh, right here at home. I'm curious to know: Have you ever felt that you've needed to censor yourself? I mean, you have written with mm-hmm. deep empathy. You've created characters who are mm-hmm. essentially terrorists. You know, and I did feel anxious and felt. That I was worried about being watched through my research online, and that was when I was doing research for the most recent novel called Lost Memory of Skin, which was about convicted sex offenders. And as a result of my research for that book, I was online looking at pornography, looking at sites, seeing how easy or how hard it was for a teenage boy to click onto a hardcore porn and so forth. And I got very anxious about it for that very reason. I mean, it's an interesting example that you bring up because, you know, President Obama, who is siding with the FBI on this case, right. he has compared searching a smartphone to police getting a warrant and searching a house for child pornography, the basic law mm-hmm. enforcement. Well, you get a warrant to search somebody's house. You have to have probable cause in order to do it. And then you're searching the house. You aren't necessarily searching their private conversations that they may have had with their wife or with their children or with their colleagues. In a way, my phone holds the kind of private conversations that I have with my closest, most intimate friends and family members. A warrant to enter my house doesn't necessarily give access to that level of privacy. Whereas a phone holds a level of privacy in a way that nothing else does today. And the laws such as they exist have no um, application to that kind of – that differentiation, I should say, to privacy. Listening to somebody's phone calls is a little different than looking at somebody's private emails or texts or accessing one's address book and from that having access to all the um, connecting um, lines to other human beings that are very close to you and whom you might feel protective of and who are not at all involved in this particular case. I disagree, you know, extremely with the president on this one. As I myself have often communicate with writers in other countries who are under surveillance in their own country and the connecting tissue between the surveillance ops in some of these countries, many of these countries, leads us directly back to our own surveillance ops. Yeah, it's interesting. The letter says that giving the government access will put hundreds of millions of people on notice that their texts, their emails, documents, photos, videos, poems, stories, creations may no longer be secure and that they had better keep this in mind as they draft, develop, and dream. You know, though, I read the, the letter that you signed yesterday, and then I read it again today. And in the intervening 24 hours, Brussels has happened. And it's a funny thing how, (laughs) not to be flipped, but poems seem kind of inconsequential when people are being blown up at international airports. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've spoken all these last couple of weeks with any number of friends and and relatives uh, who are, you know, themselves writers, intellectuals, journalists, and so forth. And I would say the majority of these people feel 
ambivalent about the issue and don't come down on one side or the other because of the fear that we have caused by events like the one in Brussels or the one in San Bernardino. At moments like that, we more readily give up our rights to privacy and personal autonomy. It's unfortunate that, you know, here we are talking about it in the face of this horrendous attack in Brussels and say, okay, in the face of that, what do you think? Should they have, uh, if they find the uh, iPhone of one of these terrorists in Brussels, uh, shouldn't they have uh, a key to it, go in the back door to it, and shouldn't Apple provide that key? And I would still say no, they don't need it. How did they catch the terrorists from the Paris attacks? They caught them through the old-fashioned way of fingerprints. But even despite, you know, sort of any literally technicalities about how we track people down. What you're saying is that you have to stomach the fear for the greater good. Yeah. I mean, we do that all the time. Look at what we do with the gun laws. You know, <laughs> I'm taking the, uh, the contrarian point of view here, but we'll defend the gun laws and we'll put up with all kinds of how many thousands of deaths a year in order to maintain that Second Amendment and they say, well, that's the price we pay for the freedom we have. Nobody questions that today. I mean, we just say, oh, yeah, you're right. It's a trade-off. Well, we don't all say that, but it's a popular position. But when it comes to terrorism, it's very difficult to apply that same mode of thought, find that same equivalence. But it is true, I think. There is a price we have to pay, and we have to devise ways of dealing with terrorism in a way that does not sacrifice our basic fundamental rights, which is the reason they're attacking us in the first place. As an author who's written about some of the terrible things that normal people are capable of, do you think about this a lot? Do you think about what sort of motivates people to take such horrible actions? Because you've spent sort of Mm -hmm. a lot of time in that headspace. I guess I have. I wrote a novel from the point of view of, of a terrorist, John Brown and his family, and uh, who were terrorists in the interests of overthrowing slavery. We don't think of them as terrorists because we so identify now with their cause. So it's not, you know, it's not something that is peculiar to the moment now or to radical Islam or, or something. I mean, good Christians have been using terrorism for decades, for centuries, really. <laughs> One of the reasons why I love talking to authors about tech and privacy issues is because I think they have a much more, um, you know, a storytelling way of explaining these issues that can often seem dry or complicated or like, ugh, just leave it to the tech companies and the (laughs) defense analysts to deal with it. Right, right. Is there something? No, I, I know Apple is in business to be, to make money and to sell devices to us and It's in their interest to maintain as much privacy in the use of those devices as possible. That happens also to be in the interests of the consumers, of myself and millions of other consumers. But we um, have a constant ongoing kind of argument. I mean, it never ends. It It isn't a war that you win and then go home. It's an ongoing permanent state of conflict between Mostly, I believe, between commercial interests and individual interests. And um, once in a while, they overlap. All right. My last question. President Obama has warned against, these are his words, fetishizing our phones above every other value. Do you fetishize your phone, sir? I hate the word fetish uh, <laughs> in that context or in any context except that of of uh, someone who's into fetishizing, <laughs> into fetishistic behavior. But no, I don't. But let's say that I am 
raising to a kind of sacral level privacy and communication. And if that leads me then to value the privacy that guaranteed me or assured by my cell phone, because that's where so much of my linguistic engagement with other people occurs on the most intimate level, then I suppose I could be accused of fetishizing, but not really. I think it's a poor choice of words by the president, who rarely chooses words poorly. <laughs> Said by a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author. <laughs> Russell Banks, okay. thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Reading the news right now is like watching our fears over security and terrorism collide in slow motion with our worries about personal privacy and the nation's values. It's something the team and I have been thinking about a lot, and this week seemed like a particularly good time to talk about some of the nuances of this debate with people who don't work in tech or the government. People who have a different, maybe even wider, perspective. Next week, we're back with our regularly scheduled episode, a new kind of gadget that doesn't just train your brain, but changes your brain. Think is a company dedicated to really creating a clean digital way to do the things you do every day with drinks and pills. And we're going to try it right now, right? You are. You're going to try okay. it. Okay. It's available on Amazon, but should it be? That's next week. Subscribe to Note to Self so you don't miss it. The team this week was Jen Poyant, Amy Eason, Jenna Cagle, and Joe Plourd. Many thanks to Seth Kelly for his help, too. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and this is Note to Self from WNYC Studios. 